Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Yes. I, was, <laughs> I forget. I have to wait till you press record. Yeah, that's a pretty essential part of the process. I already started the show like a while back. <laughs> like 20 minutes. You guys missed like the first 20 minutes of the episode. Sorry. Uh. It's like, oh yeah, press record, press record. No, it's because uh, this morning I was watching, uh, you, you remember uh, the, the punks on Donahue? Uh, I was watching the YouTube videos of back in the, in the 80s, in the mid to late 80s, that they would uh, put on showcase like, you know, uh, Donahue, Oprah, and all those people. It was about, I mean, back, Sally Jesse. Yeah, back then, like, punk was right up there with Satanism as far as the ills of suburban America. Right. right? It's, everything's falling apart, man. The punks are here to fuck your daughter and suck your son's dick. Exactly. So I was working on that accent <laughs> all morning about like the, the woman with the big glasses. And she's like, Phil, can I have the microphone? Mm-hmm. And she's like, these punkers of today. I can't do it the way she was doing it. It's like these kids listening to that punk rock music doing drugs, worshiping Satan. No, I mean it, Kathy. Sit down. They were worshiping Satan. I can't do it the way they did it. So is it, I mean, would it help if it was like, these kids today? No, no, that's Edward James almost. These kids. How do I reach these kids? No, it's, it's more like, these kids, no, you know, they're, if we're going to go for the Midwest, you know, like there's they're these kids. sticks at old ladies in the street. <laughs> they came into my house the other day and they told me, oh, you got to listen to machine gun etiquette. And I didn't know what she was talking about <laughs> it just scared machine guns those are scary <laughs> welcome to no dogs in space ladies and gentlemen my name is marcus parks i'm carolina hidalgo and we're here for the replacements part three so when we last left the replacements they just put out an ep called stink that drew heavily on the influences that the mats have been exposed to during their time playing the midwestern hardcore circuit but even though stink is now considered a classic in the replacements catalog it was somewhat unsatisfying to the band themselves yes because the hardcore scene wasn't their scene no like they, they re- didn't really fit into the aesthetic they couldn't take themselves as seriously as the hardcore groups back then could and also where are all the girls (laughs) 
is what they kept saying. We got in this for the girls. And you didn't invite a single one. Oh, I think they invited a couple. Just not interested. Ah, See, we no, simply... that's not true. <laughs> well, I guess maybe not interested in the types of guys that were asking them to the hardcore show. Like Henry Rollins, like, you want to see my dead pet rat in the freezer? Because <laughs> that was actually an opening line. Oh, God. See, as we said before, hardcore punk can only take you so far. And even some of the founders of hardcore, like Ian MacKay, Jello Biafra, and the aforementioned Henry Rollins, look at my rat. <laughs> they moved on from the style fairly quickly due to the subgenre's creative limitations. Now, the replacements felt much the same way. But while bands like Minor Threat and Black Flag, Woo! A- yeah, they actually were hardcore, the replacements saw it as just one more style of music that held just as much importance as Yes or the Rolling Stones or Big Star. In other words, as rock critic Robert Christgau put it, bands like The Replacements don't have roots or principles. Instead, they just have stuff they like. And when it comes down to it, some of the most influential revolutionary art is born from that place of comfort. With The Replacements, their genius wasn't necessarily in the breaking of the rules, but more in the willful ignorance of the way things were supposed to be done in favor of their own internal logic. Basically, how it went in the early days of The Replacements is that principal songwriter Paul Westerberg had to please everyone in the band when he brought a song to the table. If it didn't rock enough, Bob Stinson wouldn't like it. If it wasn't catchy enough, drummer Chris Mars wouldn't like it. And if it wasn't modern enough, bassist Tommy Stinson wouldn't like it. But the thing about Paul Westerberg was that, as we said last episode, he was an amazingly prolific songwriter, and about half of the songs that he'd written weren't what would be considered replacements appropriate for this period of the band's existence. See, Paul was going through an evolution as a songwriter that had begun on their first album with Johnny's Gonna Die. It continued with the single If Only You Were Lonely and on the one slow track on the Stink EP, Go. And perhaps not surprisingly, it was Peter Jesperson who was doing the most to encourage that evolution, pushing Paul in a direction that would create the songs that would make The Replacements' third release their best yet. Ooh, yes. So, okay, so Peter Jesperson, he's he's the only one who's privy to all these songs that Paul Westerberg is writing right now, right? So Paul would write these songs at home every day with his brother's guitar or his family's piano, and the songs he wrote on the piano would usually be slower songs mm-hmm. because, as Paul said, I just can't play fast on the piano, yeah. so the songs are going to be slower. I mean, he's, what do you expect from me? He's not Jerry Lee Lewis. No. <laughs> and, and so he'd record them on his boombox, and then he'd hand the tape over to Peter Jesperson and kind of like run away like, like he did with the first demo way back when they first met at Orfolk. You could say that that tradition continued for years. Yeah. So and Paul would tell Peter, don't tell anyone about this. Don't tell Bob. He'll think it's lame. The, these songs are kind of hokey, but I think there's something to them. Maybe you know what? I'll just delete this. It's lame. It's stupid. And then, <laughs> no, 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 never mind. It's, never mind. It's, it's stupid. It's stupid. Whatever. It's stupid. You know. <laughs> just listen to a lot of raspberries lately. All right. You know, that's, you know how it happens. But Peter Jesperson, he'd be like, no, how about we record a few of these solo demos at a recording studio? Just you and me. No one has to know. And Paul, he hesitated, but he said, OK. Fuck yeah, let's go for it. So Paul grabs his guitar and they head out the door and immediately run into drummer Chris Mars. Oh, oh. hey, what, what are you doing here? Wow, it's funny, fun running into you here, Chris. Hey. And they're like, it's a secret recording that is no longer so secret anymore. <laughs> so Chris comes too. And the first song Paul records is a romantic song with a famous lyric that Paul wrote when he was drunk one night in Duluth, Wisconsin. The ever so romantic, I can live without your touch if I can die within your reach. Oh. 
You forgot which state Duluth was in. Yes, I got lost. <laughs> now, even though Within Your Reach is a fine song that very much sounds like it was recorded in 1983, it merely represented one of the many styles of rock music that the replacements were experimenting with at this time. After realizing that they weren't as successful as they thought they'd be, they figured that for their third release, they'd slow it down, relax, and show their audience and the critics everything they could do. The result of this creative breakthrough was an eclectic collection of songs that birthed the kind of music that most people think of when they think of the replacements. Hootenanny. And fittingly, considering their experience with the Midwestern hardcore circuit, the song that ushered in this new era was about scenes themselves, a college radio classic about the alienating veneer of coolness that could be applied to any scene, anywhere, at any time. Color me impressed. Every party. They could be about fucking Roman times. Like it's that's the, the <laughs> but that's the genius of Paul Westerberg. It's it's the it's the universal nature of his songwriting. Like they, that dude is plugged in to humanity. I yes. mean, maybe not personally, but as far as creatively goes, like he knows how to write a song that everybody can fucking feel. Oh yeah, he knows. So here here we are. It's the winter of 1982 into 1983 in fucking Minneapolis, Minnesota. <laughs> it's a cold, dark place at this time. And the replacements, they're recording most of their third album in a freezing warehouse with Paul Stark. My God. Remember, Paul Stark is one-third CEO of Twin Tone Records. Mm -hmm. He allowed the mats on the label only if Peter would deal with them. Yeah. Because... And their music, their style wasn't really his thing. Yeah, and he's the one that is described as Spock-like. Yes. Yeah. Very, very intelligent, very yeah. forward-thinking guy. It's just the, the the heart of the music thing, he he leaves that to Peter Jasperson. Yeah. Pretty obvious. But now, Twin Tone has this fancy new 24-track mobile recording unit that Paul Stark bought. So I'm, 
I'm assuming that's why he's recording them now, engineering and producing the album, because it is not a toy. <laughs> no, you cannot put your beer there. This is the state of our equipment, okay? I gutted a mobile home and I put fancy recording equipment in it, and no one's allowed to touch it but me. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm assuming I I'm assuming that that's why he's spending a Minnesota winter in a freezing, unheated warehouse, sitting in a windowsless mobile home to record his not-favorite band. <laughs> no, he's in the mobile home because that's where the heater is. I don't even know how heated it, it might be. But either way, he's wearing a turtleneck. The way the replacements tell the story, he is the villain of this one. <laughs> lovingly, lovingly. But yes, replacements, thank you for coming to my warehouse out here in the middle of nowhere. Please record your rock music. <laughs> but anyway, it was obvious that Paul Stark and the band weren't getting along during recording. And it was a little awkward communicating because Paul Stark is in like the windowless mobile home and he's only talking to them on like the talkback mic. Mm-hmm. So you can't even see them. And they can't even see them each other and and they're already fighting yeah so like you know paul westerberg he'd talk in the mic he's like can you put reverb on that song that we just did and and stark would reply back with a no <laughs> <laughs> i don't want to ruin that track we'll do it in post if you want just keep going what's the next song and so westerberg like he just looks around at the guys he's you know they're all wearing their winter jackets and their hats with the <laughs> flaps on like why would you make us record here so paul silently motioned the guys to switch instruments okay tommy take my guitar mm-hmm. and give your bass to bob bob give your guitar to Chris and I'll do the drums and sing okay is that cool all right okay all right and then they're like okay we're ready now we're ready okay uh next song hoot nanny and eat <laughs> that take <laughs> Paul Stark pressed the intercom and said um okay uh, do you want to try that one again or, or come in and listen to it and Paul Westerberg said nope that's it first song side one that's our opener light cigarette <laughs> and it was like hilarious the whole time they're just like wow I didn't know Chris Mars was that good at guitar how are you guys making this up on the spot because that is part of the magic it's part of the magic and it it is Track one, side one, to Hoot Nanny. No overdubs, no, <laughs> no changes, no nothing. It's the title track of the album, and it's a fucking joke. This is an investment. <laughs> now, outside of the fuck around nature of Hoot Nanny, Paul was still taking specific experiences from his life and applying them to songs that anyone could relate to, much like he done with Goddamn Job on Stink and Customer and Sorry Ma. Case in point is track five on Hoot Nanny, which was inspired by an incident that almost cut Paul's music career short right when it was taken off. After riding home from a gig one night, Paul very suddenly began hyperventilating in pain to the point where it seemed like he was having a heart attack. Peter Jesperson was driving and floored it towards the hospital, running every red light. And just before they got there, Paul grabbed Peter's shoulder and weakly said, If I die, 
don't let Bob sing. <laughs> and Bob was probably like, you mean like today or ever? <laughs> As it turned out, though, Paul and True Replacements Forum had just suffered an adverse reaction to some pharmaceutical amphetamines he'd taken at the gig, probably Benzedrine or something similar, some Bennies. During Paul's visit to the ER, though, it was found that he was also suffering from an inflammation of the lungs called pleurisy, which Paul figured came from his many attempts to sing like Lemmy, lead singer of Motorhead. And smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, yeah. drinking whiskey all night. <laughs> so the doctor told Paul that coating his chest with Bengay before shows might help. And for years afterward, any replacement stress in room you'd walk into had a whiff of menthol mixed in with all the spilled beer and cigarette butts. Inspired by his brush with death, Paul wrote the bluesy punk tune, Take Me Down to the Hospital, which quite nicely captures the feeling of trying to be cool while you actually think you might be dying. Yeah. Which we've all done. Yeah. That's Mary Lou Westerberg's favorite song. Really? Yeah, of that time. At that time period. Yeah, Paul Westerberg's mother. Yeah. I think she had to pick a song. (laughs) Oh, I like that one about the hospital. Actually, that's exactly how she said it. Quote. Anyway, back to recording the Hootenanny album in the freezing warehouse. They would usually drink while they recorded, you know, just to let loose a little, uh, which is why the album sounds a little loose. Yeah. A little, let's say, not sober. (laughs) But Bob... It's part of the charm, though. Exactly. But Bob would take it a step too far and he would get too drunk to record his parts. I mean, he would show up at the beginning of the session with three beers in him already. So there was that sweet spot where he'd be great, but then he'd get too drunk at the session as the session wore on and then they wouldn't be able to use them anymore. It's how you play pool at a bar. Yeah. Right. Uh, So that was a bit tricky. But remember, they're all raging lunatics. They're drinking and they're doing speed and not eating food ever. They're rambunctious Midwestern kids. The finest this side of the Mississippi. (laughs) I mean, I understand that sweet spot. Anyone who's been in a band, I think, understands that sweet spot of like, 
just enough beer. Like just like two, three beers in, it's like you're loose, everything's fucking rolling. But you gotta but then there's it's a dragon that you gotta ride. Or maybe like a horse you that you gotta eat ride. Something. <laughs> you should eat like a horse. <laughs> but it's like it's riding that thing. And then like some people ride it and like you, you know, you start sipping at one point, but then sometimes you just keep fucking going and then it's a mess. And that was and this was sort of the beginning of Bob yeah. going a little bit too far, you know. And oh, just, he's already there. Yeah, he's yeah, already yeah, he's his, already there. That line is way behind his body. <laughs> yeah. Now, even though the songs we played so far don't sound like huge departures for the replacements, Hootenanny overall saw the band dabbling in whatever rock genre they felt like tackling, without any regard as to what was expected of them or how these songs might fit together on an album. There was the trendy synth already covered on Within Your Reach, the twangy surf of the instrumental Buck Hill, a quick return to hardcore with heyday and the lounge lizard sleaze of love lines yeah i fucking love this song yeah stop it slightly overweight girls need sex also, send your note and desires. Means of contact, P.O. Box 8941. Baby, you've been along. I'll read another as soon as it comes around. Feeling pressure? Call Love Lines. J.D., if you need a fishing partner, please let me know. Visitors, welcome. Instruction 5. Generation Master, you get from mine. Hey, Ellen. Mark says hi Tom, what else can I say? I love you very much I'm glad we're together Miss you a lot Love kitten Oh yeah, oh yeah Kitten Oh yeah, oh yeah Lurking lizards Lying under tanners Under girl fix Waiting for the return Of the crawling kingsnake John Lee <laughs> All right, that song, at least the music, is a down-tempo version of something uh, Paul Westerberg wrote even before he met the guys in the band. And everyone liked it, you know, the, how bluesy it sounds and everything. So when it came to finish the song to lay down the vocals, Paul grabbed, like, a City Pages newspaper that was laying around and started reading from the personals column. Yeah. So the, uh, he just sat there on the floor with the mic in his hand, like, reading these out loud. I, I think mainly just to make everyone laugh and probably because it sounded really cool. It sounded great. Yeah. Well, in addition to styles, the replacements also experimented with moods. And in that experimentation, they predicted the brooding lumber that was so pervasive during the alternative rock explosion of the 90s. This song blows my fucking mind. In track four, the replacements built a bridge between the classic rock of artists like Alice Cooper and the biggest alternative band of the 90s, Nirvana. Owing mostly to Tommy Stinson's bass line, that bridge was willpower.
That fucking time traveler, Paul Westerberg. <laughs> My God. Jesus Christ. But outside of the 10 years ahead of its time sound of willpower, Hootenanny also featured a song that dabbled in early 80s thrash, which, like Take Me to the Hospital, had a death-defying story all of its own. Death-defying situation. <laughs> so I've heard. So I've heard. Okay, so Paul Westerberg and Chris Mars, right? They were drinking at Bob Mould's house. Remember the guitarist and lead singer from Husker Du? I told you they were cool with each other. Yeah, they were totally cool. There might have been a little competition at the, you know, the very beginning, but they knew how to get along. Yeah, they're buds. Yes, exactly. And one night, Paul and Chris, they're hanging out at Bob's house. They're listening to music till about 3 a.m. when they decide to go home. So Chris and Paul get on Chris's dirt bike, which is like this kind of cheap motorcycle. Like he barely had a motorcycle license yeah. at this point. So they get on. They they took off. And since it was so late at night, the roads were empty. So Chris decided to zigzag along the white lines on the road like a David Lynch movie, <laughs> going between the lanes for fun and stupid because he's drunk. Yeah. And so suddenly. Don't do this. No, don't do this. <laughs> because suddenly, uh-oh, Chris Mars sees a pair of headlights going towards them. So Chris thought it'd be hilarious to drive in the wrong lane, the other car's lane, and play a little chicken with it. Bad idea on a dirt bike. Meaning both vehicles are moving straight towards each other, and whoever swerves first loses. I know I know how to play chicken. Not everyone knows. I actually had to look it up. Really? Yes. Ah, sometimes I really do forget you didn't grow up in America. So, <laughs> as they're getting closer, Chris decides to be chicken, mm-hmm. and he swerves right back on the, on the right lane at the last second. So it's all good, right? Mm-hmm. But then the car turns around and starts chasing Chris and Paul on the motorbike. So Chris is still pretty drunk off Grain Belt beer. Oh. He took off speeding off the road and onto the sidewalk across people's lawns, trying to outrun the car they pissed off. And this chase went on for a while. Mm-hmm. The whole time, Chris and Paul are laughing themselves silly, not once thinking maybe that's an unmarked cop car. <laughs> maybe? Well, it fucking was! <laughs> because by the time Chris Chris stopped to let Paul out. The cop car stopped too, ran out, grabbed Paul, handcuffed him, and threw him in the backseat of the cop car. And for some asinine, drunken reason, Chris decides to continue the fun by circling the cop car with Paul inside it, yelling and screaming obscenities at the cops, saying, hey, let my friend go, woo, motherfuckers. Like, like he could have had one gun in each hand. But then several cars, several cop cars just showed up, full blast lights and sirens just barreling down from every angle, every single street. And pulling over in front of Chris, still on his bike, still hooting and hollering, <laughs> until they finally boxed him in. And then they grabbed that little fucker and threw him in jail for the for the whole night while they let Paul go because Paul told them, I don't know that guy. I'm just a hitchhiker. Honest, never seen him in my life. So later, Paul wrote two songs about the whole ordeal. One that didn't make it on the album called It's Hard to Wave in Handcuffs. <laughs> and the other that did was called Run It.
just imagine all those Midwestern. Like, hey, come on now. Hey, what? Don't stop riding the motorcycle now. Okay, <laughs> all right. Now it was funny before, but now I get. Now it's getting late, and then we gotta go. We gotta get out of here. I said, son. They are. Yeah, they are the Midwestern version of hot fuzz chasing that <laughs> swine around. So after the album was finished in January of 1983, it was time for the replacements to go on a tour beyond just a couple of simple Midwestern jaunts. One might think, however, that this might be a problem because bassist Tommy Stinson was still in the first half of high school. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The solution to this problem came when Anita Stinson, Tommy's mother, signed a notarized agreement saying that while the replacements were touring, Peter Jesperson, who is now fully the band's manager, would act as Tommy's legal guardian. And so around the time that Hootenanny was released in the spring of 1983, the band embarked on their Eastern World Tour during Tommy's spring break that included their New York City debut. Now, even though the replacements were slated to play the hippest venues in the hippest town in the world, the Mats decided that they wouldn't be intimidated, unlike, say, the Ashton brothers, who stood in the corner of Andy Warhol's factory and didn't talk to anyone the first time the Stooges came to town. Yeah, because it's intimidating. Yeah, man. Instead, the Mats played up their Midwestern roots, determined to be as hickish as possible. Somewhat ironically, however, this is actually a very Midwestern and specifically Minnesotan thing to do. Oh, you think Minneapolis is bad, you gotta go, gotta go to Duluth. <laughs> oh, you think Duluth is bad with that? Hop on over to Superior, Wisconsin. <laughs> that's what I've heard. That that yeah. um that's how you do it in the Midwest. You, you, you just c- keep one-upping and then you name towns. <laughs> you know what? I actually told Ben that and he was like, yeah, that's fucking it. Exactly, man. Oh, yeah. you think it's bad over here? Oh, last yeah. podcast on the oh. left. You should check out No Dogs in Space. On the face of intimidation and conflict, some gentlemen of the Midwest Western persuasion tend to go on the defensive with either a joke or total avoidance, anything to avoid taking the situation seriously. And of course, this is exactly what the replacements did. For their first show in New York, the replacements played a Greenwich Village venue called Folk City, which, since 1982, had been doing a series of shows called Music for Dozens, aptly named because Folk City's capacity numbered in the literal dozens. Mm. Now, Music for Dozens had come about because the owners of Folk City were looking to host a night that was a little more cutting edge, like something in the vein of a CBGB Unplugged. According to Music for Dozens founder Michael Hill, however, hardly anybody played Unplugged or even softly. And the replacements, known as an offensively loud band anyway, took that to the extreme. Before the 30-song set was even halfway over, the replacements had blown out the PA with the cover of Ace of Spades, but refused to stop. Why? (laughs) Because they weren't fucking done. Yeah. Even when the Folk City owners turned on the lights as if they were trying to scatter the cockroaches. Are are they flipping it on and off? (laughs) Stop it. Stop it. (laughs) The replacements played until they decided they were done. So after Folk City was a gig at the famed club Danceteria, where the band saw people openly doing cocaine and fucking in the stairways. Yeah, it's like fucking Babylon over there. (laughs) Yeah, Danceteria? No, dude, the fucking, you got Madonna and the Beastie Boys running around Danceteria at the same time. Move that (laughs) body. Well, there the replacements played so late that they had time to get drunk and get sober again. And as a result, they reportedly played a fucking fantastic set. I can't say I don't know how that feels like. (laughs) Sharing the bill with the replacements at Danteteria was another Midwestern band that dabbled heavily in the same Americana stylings that the replacements were beginning to settle into. A band that in many ways shared the same spirit as the replacements. 
That band was the Violent Femmes. And oh my God, I would have fucking killed to see this show. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my, oh my, oh my, what if it was true? And oh my, oh my, oh my, tell me, is it true? Diddy, 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 die upon that cross. And diddy, on our radio station. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Jesus Walk on the Water always puts me right back into the fucking college radio hot seat. I like American music, the, the song. Oh, that was also another huge one. Very big one. Well, following Danceteria, the replacements continued on to Great Gildersleeves, a downtown venue around the corner from CBGB that hosted Hardcore Sundays. There, the replacements played with Husker Du and the Young and the Useless, whom dedicated listeners might remember from our Beastie Boy series as the first band of a young Adam Horowitz, a.k.a. Ad-Rock. Yeah, definitely. But I don't think Ad-Rock was still in the Young and the Useless by then, since he'd actually, he was already with the Beastie Boys because they'd recorded Cookie Puss. No. Yeah. So, so he, he's not here that night. Oh my God, you're, sometimes you're such an um, well, actually person. It fucking, I, it amazes me. I have to add that in, so, just to be sure, because it bothers me. Um, well, actually, at this point, Cookie Puss had already been released, so Adam Horowitz was no longer in the Young and the Useless. I didn't put on my glasses. <laughs> But yes, it's true. In Hardcore Sundays, he was not at, by the way. Although the Beastie Boys were playing the next Hardcore Sunday, that next week. But uh, Oh, shit, I'm doing it again. <laughs> Fucking. Okay, so Hardcore Sundays. Who did I marry? <laughs> hardcore Sundays at Gildersleeves. And as you said, a weekly show where you expect to see bands like DOA, Misfits, Minor Threat, Husker Du. Well, actually, they're there. Yep. Husker Du is there. And the replacements, who definitely don't fit in with the hardcore crowd in the Lower East Side. Musically and aesthetically, they're not wearing studded jackets and shaved heads. They're they're in flannel because mm. flannel is comfortable, economical, <laughs> warm. It's softer as you wear. It's low maintenance. You don't need to dry clean it or iron. Just hang it up and dry it. It's done. Goddamn right. Yes. That's why I wear it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so this story involves the great Jack Rabbit, the founder and editor of The Big Takeover, and also former drummer for Even Worse. And now Jack Rabbit, he was DJing at Gildersleeves that night, and he was a big fan of The Replacements, so he was really excited to see them play. Him and Jesse Mallon, and oddly enough, Robert Criscow was there. Huh. They were the only ones who were excited 
excited. Yeah. The other 95 people did not give a rat's ass who the replacements were. Yeah. But they're playing tonight. Yeah. Right? Uh, I mean, Jack Rabbit and Robert Christgauer are arguably the two biggest replacements fans in the world. In, in this the- room. <laughs> especially in this room. Definitely in this room, yeah. Because George Went is nowhere to be seen. <laughs> We'll get to George Went next episode. We'll strangely get to you enough. later, George. <laughs> <laughs> so yes. So okay. So that was also the same night that Peter Jesperson got a hold of the test pressing of their third album, Hoot Nanny. Mm-hmm. Like he finally got it. He's like, this is awesome. So when Peter Jesperson and Paul climbed up that ladder to the DJ booth, they were like, Hey, uh, Jack, can you play a track from our latest record? We got a test pressing right here. So when Jack Rabbit was like, Yeah, of course. He's thinking maybe like a uh, taking a ride from Sorry Mom or Kids Won't Follow from. Stink. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't he? He said to himself, <laughs> why wouldn't he? So when Jack put on track one, Hoot Nanny. Uh-huh. And let's have a little bit of a reminder. What the 100 punks heard that night. Seriously, maybe some more fog hat in this town would probably do this place good. Um, so yes, the hundred hardcore punks heard that. They heard the hoot nannies, the hoot nanny. The audience started booing. They started throwing their beer at the DJ booth. So Jack Rabbit quickly takes cover. He t- and also takes the track off the player and he throws on an F word record real fast. But it didn't matter. The audience were pissed as hell. And this was before the replacements went on. (laughs) Did I mention that? So at first, I felt bad for the replacements. It doesn't feel encouraging to know that everyone is booing your latest record, right? But then, Marcus, you told me they knew that the audience would hate it, that they were trolling. (laughs) And I thought, in earnest, these poor guys, they need a hug. So to settle this once and for all, I had to ask Jack Rabbit himself. (laughs) Because remember, I got to talk to him um, by Zoom uh, about the the New York hardcore scene uh, when we did our Beastie Boys series last summer, right? Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Jack. You're Thank awesome. You. Thank you. And so last week I emailed him and I asked him about it. I was like, hey, do you remember Gildersleeves? Yeah. You know, replacements were there. You were there. Who's Gurdu were there? And he's like, yeah, I remember. <laughs> of course. Were they? So I asked him, like, were they joking or did they need a hug? And he and Jack Rabbit said, of course, they knew people would hate it. How dare you underestimate the replacements? <laughs> okay. He didn't say that part, but he did, he did say, like, of course they knew. Yeah. There was knee slapping. They loved it. They were having a great time. And, and Jack was, he was awesome and sharing all the details about the guys and everything that he was a part of. So it was super, super cool to hear about it. Yeah. And uh, anyway, back to the show. Yeah. And go read The Big Takeover, by the way. Go subscribe to The Big Takeover. That's uh, Jack's Absolutely. Magazine. It's fucking great. Yes. It is so great. We, we we use it. We actually use it as a source. We do. We subscribe to it. Yes. So suffice to say, the hundred or so hardcore guys of the show did not enjoy the replacement set. Not even Husker Du did well. Yeah. yeah, they were, and they had like 10 cups of coffee in them, and they're screaming Robert Chris, Chris Gow's face. And he's just sitting up front writing notes, being like, they're awesome. You know? <laughs> Fucking awesome. Okay, Village Voice published. But the rest of the, everyone else is like, where's Agnostic Front? How come you guys aren't wearing a bandana? You know? <laughs> oh, and guess what? The replacements didn't get paid that night oh. on that show. The Young and the Useless did, and so did Husker Du. But for some reason, the promoter didn't want to pay the replacements. He said they should be lucky to even be on that bill. Oh, fuck you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I really hope Paul hope Paul Westerberg did the whole, like, he reaches in his pocket 
Tolkien and out comes a middle finger? <laughs> I really hope so. I hope so, too. Now, once Hootenanny was released with the cover ripped off from a folk sampler record from 1963 because the band thought it was funny, <laughs> the reviews were solid, if sometimes a little backhanded. Rolling Stone refused to review it, and Playboy called it so terrible it was great. But others compared it to The Clash's eclectic masterpiece, Sandinista. And I think that's a more apt comparison. But in the end, all that really mattered was that the replacements loved the record. They felt that it was the first time that they really sounded like themselves, which is telling considering how the album is all over the place stylistically. Soon after the release of Hootenanny, the Mats went on tour in support of the album with a band that would become a touring partner, a sometime recording partner in the case of one member, and an unlikely group of supporters. That band was R.E.M. Did you never call? Waiting for your calls Rivers of suggestion You're driving me away The trees were thin The cities wash away The city on the river There's a girl without a dream I'm sorry I'm sorry R.E.M., which stands for Rapid Eye Movement. Yes. But to the band, their name is something to be open to uh, interpretation. Yeah. They, they wanted a name that would stand out from the other bands, and they didn't necessarily peg them into a certain type of music. Besides, it was better than the suggestions their friends gave, like Cans of Piss <laughs> and Slut Bank. <laughs> Slut Bank was almost the number one recording artist of the late 80s into the early 90s. Yeah, yeah. Who here's, knew? Yeah, here's Everybody Hurts by Slut Bank. <laughs> And the winner is Slut Bank. <laughs> For uh, losing my religion. Here's Shiny Happy People by Slut Bank. I wish. If only I want to visit that parallel universe. Okay, so R.E.M., they actually started around the same time that The Replacements did yeah. in, in 1980, where two best friends, Peter Buck and Michael Stipe, met two other best friends, Bill Berry and Mike Mills. And the four of them started a band and within months their roommates living in an old Episcopalian church and having parties and playing gigs there and all over town. Yeah, Athens, Georgia. Yes. Ab oh yes, I forgot to mention that. They are from Athens, Georgia. Yeah, Athens, Georgia. Oh, I got so excited. And they, we all get excited around R.E.M., I understand. Yeah. <laughs> that's the one, that's the other word that they use to describe R.E.M. is like super fucking excited all the time. They are. We are. So R.E.M. Actually one of the best live shows I ever saw was REM like when I was in that. college. They were fucking fantastic. They were amazing. I remember looking at you and being like, really? Yeah, they really, really were. They were fucking fantastic. They work hard at it. Yeah. And that's the one thing I've noticed uh, that that kind of made them different from a lot of the other bands, especially including the replacements, is the fact that uh, REM, they, they did everything creatively in the way they wanted to, just like the replacements, just like Husker do. They had complete creative control over everything. The only difference was they would have a band meeting, <laughs> which means that they would organize with each other. They would communicate with each other, and they would also make sure that they they uh, they were a group, they were a gang, like one for all, all for one kind of business, where um, they would share the publishing rights, mm -hmm. which means whoever wrote the song, they all shared it equally, and they made sure to do this 
early on in their career so they wouldn't have to worry about the pitfalls of what happens later. Trust me, it's the best way to do everything. Yes. Yes. You find people you trust and then you just sign it off. Just you, you guys are all in it together. Yeah. One for all, all for one. You, you, Henry and, and Ben, you guys are brothers. I'm absolutely. Triangle of trust. Exactly. So that's that's what REM did. And I, that's probably why it's a big reason why they went like to being big, like big stars from where they're starting right now, where we are right now. They're they're touring everywhere, they're sleeping on the floor of their van, even stopping by Minneapolis to play there, which is where guitarist Peter Buck met Peter Jesperson at Orfolk, where they became fast friends. Uh, and, and then, of course, R.E.M. got bigger as as time went by because they were signed within like less than two years of being a band. They were so organized. Yeah, they got signed to IRS, right? They got signed, yes, yeah. IRS at, fr- at first because uh, the Miles Copeland, they knew Miles Copeland pretty well. Yeah. So since Peter Buck, uh, he, he was actually also a record store clerk. He started, these are record store clerks starting bands. Same with <laughs> R.E.M. Two of the members were record store clerks. Yep. Who's going to do? Two of the members were record store clerks. So. <laughs> yeah, but and with the replacements, they had to have a record store clerk to get their asses in gear. Exactly. But yeah, it's all record store you clerks. You need one. You need one. And so, the early days of college rock, college radio, it's all record store clerks. So Peter Buck, you know, he's buddies with Peter Jesperson now. And thanks to that friendship, Peter Jesperson managed to get the replacements to open for REM for a handful of shows. Dare I say, go on tour together. Mm-hmm. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Donald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Now, once the Mats started opening for R.E.M., they found that the R.E.M. crowd wasn't always receptive because the replacements in R.E.M., I kind of see them as like two sides of the same college radio coin. Okay. See, see, while the replacements certainly had their sensitive side, R.E.M. was sensitivity personified, as was evidenced in the song. It's a tulpa. We, yeah, yeah, it's a sensitivity tulpa. Yeah. I mean, the song we just played, South Central Rain, the chorus is Michael Stipe just apologizing over and over again as he waits for a phone call tormented by a river of suggestion. He can't go to bed at night because he knows what happened in Sudan. <laughs> The poor, sentimental man. <laughs> but even so, the other three members of R.E.M. outside of lead singer Michael Stipe, they ended up as drinking buddies for the replacements, which only made the party larger and more unmanageable. <laughs> yes, I can see how they can be unlikely drinking buddies. Yeah. Because R.E.M., as you said, is a, it, it, they're a bit more responsible. They are. And they treat their music and their business seriously. But they, then again, remember, they're also rock stars. No, they're also kids in their 20s. They can party with the best of them. And lucky for them... 
They are. The replacements. They are the best of them. <laughs> if you're going to party with any band and you don't care about keeping your eyebrows, then the mats are the ones to go with. Because re- remember, they're all nuts. Every weekend is a lost weekend. Yeah. But they also had their reasons, like stage fright. Paul, he drank to help with that yeah. and, t- and to self-medicate, t- to keep in the right mood for what needed to be done. So that's how he, he used alcohol. He'd usually be drinking whiskey. Tommy, he's not drinking yet because he's still he's a little brother still. And, and Bob, well, Bob was a whole other thing. Bob's as a we whole were saying. different story. Bob's Bob, an alcoholic. He's an alcoholic. He drinks so much he'd lose control. Like blackouts were a regular thing, which could be scary for the people around him. And they called Bob's drinking personality Mr. Hyde. And they said that because he was also a Dr. Jekyll. Like he was a really wonderful, sweet person who unfortunately used alcohol to deal with his psychological problems. Yeah. Or rather, not deal with them. Yes. But then Bob would turn around and do something hilarious like rubbing Paul's Ben Gay on his balls and playing the whole set <laughs> naked. <laughs> Just because someone dared him to. You know, it's a sad clown situation. Yeah, yeah then afterwards he's like, that was awful. I don't know why I did that. That was so terrible. To, to make people happy. Yeah. You know, that that whole tragedy thing, yeah. unfortunately. It's very, no, Bob Stinson is... By far the tragic story of uh, The Replacements' tale. Now, the drinking undertaken by The Replacements during this tour resulted in even poorer performances than usual. Because while The Replacements could get blackout and have a fantastic set, they were more likely to almost forget they were even on stage. I don't have a problem. Yeah. I don't have a problem. I'm sorry. He was doing rock song. And the whole time they're on stage. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're the one with the problem. And then that was it. And yeah. then they start wrestling, yeah. literally wrestling. Yes, on stage. And these days, though, that didn't apply to Tommy Stenson, who was just 16 and still completely sober. As a result, those drunken performances became a huge source of frustration for the only sober person on stage. One night, in fact, Tommy almost damn near quit the tour and the band during a show in Cincinnati, in which the replacements were very unwisely paid in beer because they hadn't formally been booked to open for R.E.M. that night. Once Paul and Bob started pouring beer into the stage monitors during the show, barely aware they were even playing, Tommy threw down his bass, walked off stage, and tried to get his mom to wire money for a flight home. Jesperson talked him down, but soon after, Tommy started drinking himself, basically because there was no way he could handle being in the replacements if he didn't drink along with everyone else. But even though Tommy was dealing with pressures that very few kids his age had to deal with, he was still, at the end of the day, a 16-year-old kid. And Paul Westerberg took notice. So one day, during soundcheck before a show opening for R.E.M., Paul debuted a song that was a combination of Tommy's experiences and Paul's own not-too-distant memories of his teenage years. Now, at first, I thought that this song was about being 16, but I don't think that's really it. Really, I think this song is about seeing a teenager and remembering what it's like, being both sympathetic and kind of harsh. In other words, it's a song about being a big brother, or at least like a big brother figure. Name-checking its obvious influence of Bad Fingers' Baby Blue, The Replacements debuted one of the best songs on their third album, 16 Blue.
And yeah, it is one of the best songs on their third album because Stink is an EP. Oh, <laughs> gosh. I, I don't know what kind of monster I created. I'm oh, sorry. No. Oh, no. This monster was around long before you showed up, Oh, darling. yes. When, the, when emails were invented. Well, during this tour, though, there was another change in the replacements. Since R.E.M. was between tour managers, they asked replacements manager Peter Jesperson to fill in for a few gigs, which seemed like a good idea for the sake of contacts and learning how to road manage a bigger band. After a little grumbling and some snide comments, the Mats agreed. But Peter Jesperson foolishly gave the responsibility of road managing one of the most irresponsible bands of the day to a couple of roadies named Tom Carlson and Bill Sullivan. Hey, they're not just a couple of roadies. They were instrumental to the rise of the replacements music career and maybe also detrimental, which led to the fall of the replacements. <laughs> just, just, just listen to the first sentence. Okay, okay yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, let's pay attention to the first sentence. Okay, so yes, so they, yes, they partied as hard as the guys in the band. They, they shouldn't have been in charge. They were more like accomplices, <laughs> really. So Peter Jesperson, he's standing from the landing of the REM's huge tour bus, just waving to the guy's bon voyage. <laughs> I shall learn the makings of a successful tour band. I'll be back. Bill and Tom are in charge. And then he just salutes. And then he's off into the mist. And almost immediately, it's chaos. Yeah, of course. They're pulling up, the, the band is pulling up the sound check in a new city drunk already. Yeah. And you can imagine how that show went. <laughs> and then they lose Tommy in New York City. Yes, one night after a gig, Tommy decided to hang out with some new friends and sleep on their floor at the YMCA. He's hanging out in someone's house who doesn't even have a house. <laughs> this is and New York City, 1982, 83? He's 16 years old. <laughs> and the next morning, it's like, Kevin, Kevin. <laughs> and the next morning, when Tommy calls the band to pick him up, they didn't answer because they were having their own little party in their hotel room and someone knocked the phone cord off the wall. This is a Chris Columbus movie. Okay, this is a John Hughes written film. And Paul, Bob, and Chris, not realizing their phone was out of order, decided not to wait for 16-year-old Tommy anymore and they drove out to Boston, their next gig, without Tommy without their bassist and then the the replacements they played at the rat that night and they got the bassist from Del Fuegos to play with them so at least they were smart enough to coordinate that yeah. don't worry the show was saved everyone don't worry. but meanwhile there's an unsupervised teenager who's stuck in New York City for a whole 24 hours he spent the day wandering around Central Park hungry no food no money just trying to make friends he got a free hot dog from someone by telling his sob story <laughs> that he doesn't think they believed I'm 16. I play in a rock and roll band. I'm a bassist. I, I, I'm not in school anymore. What are you doing later? You know? <laughs> because honestly, there was nothing you could do. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, he they have no money. He had to wait until they swung back and picked him back up the next day. Good luck trying to get a hotel room. They're living on $5 a day and sleeping in one motel room, like eight of them, all of them on the floor, in the closet, wherever they could find floor space. They needed to do these gigs for money, but they would screw it up by pissing off the owners or the the promoters or the audience or all three. <laughs> yeah, like the Gildersleeve show. They just didn't get paid. No. <laughs> or like when they played in Washington, D.C. at the 930 Club and they walked most of the crowd by playing Bachman Turner Overdrive <laughs> covers at what was described at a shattering volume. <laughs> Taking care of business. I know you guys heard it a half hour ago, but how about one more time? <laughs> 
And so while the club owner is yelling at Paul, get off the stage. And Paul is repeating, he's mimicking into his mic, get off the stage. I mean it, you guys are done. I mean it, you guys are done. Until the sound was cut. So they had to leave. Meanwhile, Peter Jesperson, he was enjoying the calmness of an REM tour. He's just doing paperwork, really. Everyone's so nice and helpful. He's like, oh, hey, Peter, I hope hope you're enjoying the tour. Yeah. Let us know if you need anything, anything at all. We help each other out around here because we're a team. We're family. Also, a little birdie told us it's your birthday this month. We all chipped in and got you a world's greatest tour manager mug. And then cuts to Bob Stinson and Paul Westerberg wrestling on stage because Bob's too drunk and he's in a dress crying with mascara down on his face, not impressing the hardcore straight straight edge types in D.C. at all. And then back to Peter, who's just doing paperwork while whistling. And, you know, the sad thing is, and actually the endearing thing is, Peter missed the guys. Yeah, because paperwork missed, sucks. He missed the chaos. Yeah. I mean, not the pissing in the machines <laughs> bit that they do in motels. They do it in the ice machines. They would piss in the ice machines. He didn't miss that. Well, okay, even that. Don't get me started. Yeah. <laughs> Peter missed his boys. He missed his boys, and he came back like as soon as he could. He, yes. As soon as he could, he came back. <laughs> so once Jesperson was back in the fold, the replacements returned to the studio for the recording of what many consider to be not only the replacement's best album, but one of the best albums of the 1980s. Let it be. Yes. Recorded in a series of sessions at Blackberry Way from August of 1983 till February of 1984, the Let It Be sessions were recorded just as cleanly and quickly as Sarima and Stink. Consequently, the real story of Let It Be is not necessarily in the recording, but in the fantastic songs contained therein. See, Let It Be was the first replacements record that could be described as deliberate. Whereas the band would previously just bang out riffs and give them titles, the songs in Let It Be were actually arranged, and all but two came to the studio fully formed and ready to be recorded. But while Let It Be was vastly more focused than Hootenanny, the focus exacerbated a problem between Paul Westerberg and Bob Stinson that had been bubbling for years, ever since the band changed their name from Dog Breath... (laughs) 
<laughs> to the impediments to the replacements. See, Bob had always thought of himself as the leader of the band, even when it became apparent that Paul Westerberg was finally giving the band direction by throwing away the idea that he had to please every band member. Basically, it seemed like what Bob really wanted was a band with no direction, something more akin to Hootenanny, back when he could prevent a song from being on the record by purposefully fucking up his takes on solos. But by the time of Let It Be, Bob was finding he just couldn't connect with some of the songs regardless of whether he liked them or not. And as it happened, the songs he couldn't connect with were some of the best and most popular on the album. The best example was the album's opener, which since 1984 has been the rallying cry of embarrassingly romantic college radio nerds everywhere like us who think they're tougher than they actually are not like us that may be a comment <laughs> on who i was in college <laughs> song it's i will dare you all know this fucking song it's amazing yeah. it's i will dare come on <laughs> <laughs> about nerds acting tough. It's about daring to be bold, Marcus. Daring. But be bold. Be brave enough to be your true self. Yeah. Queen Latifah. <laughs> but it it's, is a, a, it's a slogan and it's also a love song. <laughs> yes. Yes. Slogan, I will dare. Yes, of course. But it's also like, yeah, I'll dare to ask you out on a date. You want to go with me to the show on Fridays? <laughs> he's just like, you don't have to if you don't want to. Like, or we could just like meet there or something. Or if like, if you want to go, like, I don't know, like get some, like, like I don't know, like dinner beforehand or something. Like we could, but we don't have to. We could totally just like meet there. You know, I'll be in the back. Ernest B. Wardle asking me out right now. You mean at the same table at the same time in the same restaurant? Um, Paul Westerberg, as you know, was quite the lady killer. Yes, he was. And in his writing, he was maturing. Mm -hmm. Okay, his songwriting was very mature. <laughs> so mm -hmm. a few weeks earlier. Remember when P Peter Jesperson, he was working his temp job as tour manager for REM, who are now getting stupid famous, by yeah, the way. REM super is huge. Job famous yeah, at this point. Yeah, Radio Free Europe is like fucking exploding. Yes. And Peter Jesperson, he invited guitarist Peter Buck to join him and the Mats in Minneapolis and hang out while they recorded their next album. You know, let it be. Yeah. So he's like, yes, come over, maybe produce the record, play on something, whatever, bring a cheese plate. <laughs> you know, and Peter Buck accepted. He's like, yeah, sure, what time? And he was there when they recorded that song, I Will Dare. They even borrowed his 12 string electric Rickenbacker guitar uh, because all their guitars were horribly out of tune in Always. the replacements. <laughs> and I was just like, wait, you know what? We should just throw this in the dumpster. There's so many fucking like replacements live recordings. It's like, yeah, you know, that would have been one of the greatest live recordings there ever was, except all of our guitars were out of tune, you know, so we can't really use it. And it just says again and again and again and again. My God. And Peter Buck's like, I, I guess you could borrow this. Just, a 12 I, I, string guitar. Yes, this is a fancy <laughs> guitar. It's got quite a storied uh, history, actually. Yeah. But and they 
also actually they also borrowed Peter Buck mm-hmm. himself. They were like, "Hey, do you want to do a solo on this song?" And Peter he did, and it sounded great. But it was kind of awkward because Bob already did his solo. You yeah. can hear it kinda underneath Peter Buck's solo. Yeah, but no one's talking about. Bob solo. Everyone's paying attention to Peter Buck playing on a replacements track. And so Bob is kind of floundering right now. The band isn't quite what it started out to be. They're not going wild with their hardcore breakneck speeds, which is where Bob would shine. And the group, like you said earlier, isn't following his lead so much, even if he is lead guitar. Yeah. I mean, Bob's best work is, is on Sorry Ma. Like, yeah. like the, his guitar solos on Sorry Ma, like that's the best shit that he ever did. Like, and that's where he shines. And all of a sudden, it ain't that no more. No, we're going a different direction. And even uh, Bob's younger brother, Tommy, who's always looked up to him, is spending a lot of time with Paul, following whatever Paul does or says. They even started to dress alike. It used to be Paul and Bob together on this musical odyssey. Mm-hmm. And Tommy was just a snot nosed little 12 year old. But now he's 17 going on 18. He's a young man now. Yeah. And he's following Paul's lead. And because of his songwriting, his playing, his swagger, everything. Paul's, yeah. Uh, yes, Tommy's looking up to that. that. That That's cool as fuck. Yeah, it's very cool. But the thing was that Bob wasn't just losing his relationship with his brother. He was also starting to lose his place in the band because Bob's contributions were lessening more and more. Besides being overshadowed on I Will Dare, Bob also didn't contribute at all to the song's answering machine, which is... One of the most well-loved songs in the album. I like that song a lot, yeah. Or the Tom Waitsian track, Androgynous. Ooh, this is my favorite. Yeah, let's check out Androgynous, which is now one of the most popular replacement songs in existence. Here comes Dick, he's wearing a skirt. Here comes Jane, you know she's sporting the chain. Same hair revolution, same build evolution. Tomorrow, who's gonna fuss? And they love each other so. Androgynous, closer than you know. Love each other so. That's such a panty peeler. <laughs> Is it my panty or your panty? So it doesn't matter. It's androgynous. Yeah, I can. I like that. I can feel your attraction to Paul Westerberg reaching back through the decades. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm channeling it directly to you. <laughs> Even if it pings just off him slightly, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Just think about you, babe. All right, so Paul Westerberg is channeling his inner Lou Reed glam beard here. Yeah. You know, Paul says, like Paul says. <laughs> Paul says. And to be fair, there's not a lot of room for Bob on a track like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's yeah. true. It's a piano ballad. Yeah. And, and, and it's very sentimental and Bob doesn't know what to do with that. No. And, and Paul said he wrote that song when he kept hearing that word androgynous. Mm-hmm. And then when a girl said it to him one night, he finally had to ask, 
what does that mean? <laughs> Androgynous. <laughs> and the girl talking to him said, uh, well, it's like uh, right now you're wearing makeup. And Paul's like, oh, and also you're in the ladies room. <laughs> and Paul looked around oh. and was like, oh, so I am. So I am. That's cool. Let's delve into this idea of genderless love. Why not? Yeah. So what happened was that on a night that they were off from recording Let It Be, the guys decided to go out and tie one on at First Avenue, one of the landmark venues of Minneapolis. It is steeped in rock music history. First Avenue and 7th Street entry. And we'll talk about it in a minute. But right now, Paul Westerberg is in the women's bathroom applying eyeliner on Peter Buck. <laughs> and they're both dressed in drag looking like a New York doll. <laughs> Having a great time, yeah. by the way, because androgyny is really fun. All that makeup smears a lot when you're drunk, though. That's the only problem. <laughs> Super fun. Man, I had so much fun with it in college. I love it. Yeah. Uh, you know I love that uh, stuff. Yeah, I know you do. And because they were very drunk, you know, Paul Westerberg and Peter Peter Buck, they were so, so drunk. And what happens when you're drunk in Minneapolis in 1984? You go to White Castle. <laughs> yeah. You go get White Castle. <laughs> Fantastic hamburger uh, fast food joint. I know you and I are Sonics people, but I also, I, I enjoy my own White Castle on my own. Oh, yeah. It's it's soggy. It, no, it's, no, there's a great one in Sunnyside uh, uh, near 39th Street. They, they don't make them soggy. All right, all right. So Paul and Peter Buck, they walk up to the counter looking like Kids in a Hall's Kathy sketch. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's like 3 a.m. You know, their wigs all over on one side. Yeah. Their hair is all... And, and nothing's looking good. Yeah. And unfortunately, it didn't take long until some of the customers started yelling at Paul and Peter yeah. and calling them names and, and nasty slurs, which led to a bit of a scuffle because Peter Buck did not back down. No. And Paul had his back, barely, but he was there. <laughs> and there was yelling and there was poking and then pushing. And finally, their their friends were able to hold Peter Buck back and, and shove him into their car while Peter yelled, you're lucky. You're lucky. <laughs> if I wasn't such a lady, I'd kick your ass all six ways from Sunday. <laughs> and now we have the perfect piano ballad. <laughs> and this <androgynous>. beautiful song. It's <laughs> absolutely gorgeous song like means so much to people. Just vomiting sliders. <laughs> just just soggy sliders. <laughs> That's how art is made, kids. Exactly. That's how art is made. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Well, lastly, concerning the songs on Let It Be, one can't help but see just how far the replacements, and especially Paul Westerberg, could come from their punk slice of life days when you listen to the song Unsatisfied. Yes. Even though Paul Westerberg himself called it, quote, one of the most overrated, half-assed, half-baked songs, <laughs> and Bob Stinson said that if they'd put another five minutes worth of time into it, the song would have sounded 50 times better, most agree that Unsatisfied is astonishing. 
In my opinion, it's the song in which Paul Westerberg finally discovered how to truly sell a specific emotion with both his lyrics and performance, even though those lyrics are admittedly just a bunch of different ways to say, I'm unsatisfied. But that's the genius of the performance. Check it out. It is so good. I wish I knew what song it reminded me of. There's like this song that starts like. No dogs in space at gmail.com. <laughs> if you wrote that, something like that, please if, write to us. If you know what song I'm talking about when if I say. If you or someone you know. How do I Robert stack this? <laughs> it's been weeks now that I can't remember that's. Da, 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 da. That sounds like unsatisfied. Fucking let me know. I'm going to die if I don't figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> as far as the album title goes, let it be. It was, like almost everything is with the replacements, a big fucking joke. One day, while Peter Jesperson was driving the band to a gig in Madison after the recording was done, the band was throwing around the dumbest titles they could think of, like Whistler's Mammy or <laughs> Stunk to go along with Stink. Then somebody said they should just name the fucking thing after the next song to come on the radio. Fucking yeah. Piano Man or Waterloo or Sweet Home Alabama. Who gives a shit? Whatever's on the radio next, that's going to be the fucking album title. And mm, Chapel of Love. <laughs> and as Peter Jesperson clinched and prepared for disaster, <laughs> this is what the band heard. before Paul McCartney even started fucking singing. Yeah! <laughs> the band started laughing because they knew that there wasn't much that would piss off Peter Jesperson and everyone else more than swiping a title from their beloved Beatles. And as a result, the album was called let it be. Yes, and Peter is just gripping that steering wheel so tight his knuckles want to explode <laughs> because that's what they did. Remember, they're not just a band. They're more of a gang, especially <laughs> while touring in that disgusting van. Not, not the Lemon Jail. That's their first one, the one that their roadie got them with their set, his settlement money. Did I tell you about that? No, Tom Carlson. <laughs> he was a part of the family. He got hit uh, by a truck and he got a $6,000 settlement and bought them a van. The Lemon Jail? That's what they called it. And then it 
die <laughs> or or uh, died by suicide. Uh, so then they got a new one. Thanks to Twin Tone, Paul Stark was obviously audibly sighing while writing a check at the dealership. Yeah. And they got a new one. This one was called Otis. And it didn't take long until they decorated it by ripping off all the seats in the van and covering the floor with beer cans, leftover food and urine. Mm-hmm. This is all real. Yeah. Because they would pee out of the side of the door and their aim wasn't all that great. Well, even if you're going down the side of the road, have you ever tried peeing? Well, actually, no, you I, probably haven't I don't haven't have tried. the parts. <laughs> Sorry. It just gets everywhere. <laughs> you might as well just piss on the floor because you're not getting that much outside of the fucking window. So it would smell. Yeah. It would have this great urine smell. And they would, uh, the band, they would also mess with Peter Jesperson while he was driving. Like if they saw a highway patrol, uh, like if they saw a highway patrol car, they would drench Peter with their beer. <laughs> or if they were stuck in traffic on the highway, Bob would do this. This is this perfect signature, Bob. He would lean in and whisper in Peter's ear, just close your eyes and floor it. Come on, be a man. Fucking do it. Just fucking floor it, bro. Just fucking do it. You or know you want to fucking do it. Come on. Or the time. Get to the gig, man. What kind of fucking tour manager are you? You're not going to get us to the fucking gig? What are you, some kind of asshole? Come on, fucking do it. You always make it weird, man. <laughs> We're going to fucking fire you if you don't get us to the gig in time, bro. Welcome to Tim and Eric's show. Uh, so, okay. All right. So, <laughs> yes, he's weird and, and my husband is awesome and weird. <laughs> or there was also that time that Peter, he smelled smoke and he swerved in the middle of the road just to find out the guys have started a newspaper bonfire in the back of the van. <laughs> and he's trying to step on it while they're laughing and his pants are catching fire and the guys are laughing even harder. It's the whole, it's a Scooby-Doo van, right? And Because that's what it was all about. Off stage and on stage, especially on on stage, they do the same thing. Like in the van, they get drunk, they'd wrestle each other, pull crazy hijinks, or actually hoot nannies. Yeah. You see, like the time they were in Los Angeles and they played with social distortion, the audience were made up of hardcore punks, which by this time in California, Orange County area, 1983, it was a lot of black flag and circle jerks, you know, lots of thrashy kind of music, the big following like that. Very established scene. Like people are showing up like expecting something. So when the replacements got on stage and they were headlining the event, Tommy looked around the crowd and sarcastically said into the microphone, whoa, punk rockers. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and the band started playing every bluesy country ballad they could think of. By the time they got to Hank Williams' Hey Good Looking, while Paul was chewing on the end of a wheat straw in a 10-gallon hat, <laughs> the hardcore punks were foaming at the mouth. They were so enraged, it made Tommy proud. Yeah. Thank you, kindly folks. <laughs> Up next, a classic tune that we all know and love, Hey, That's My Tractor. That seriously was their set list. They do this all the time. Yeah. In Richmond, Virginia, the crowd wanted their money back, and Peter Jesperson's like, okay, fine, you know, fighting with the promoter, just give them their money back. And the promoter's like, you don't understand, they all want their money back. (laughs) Nashville didn't understand them. Right, Nashville, not much for music, that town. (laughs) And Ann Arbor, Michigan, that show was quote unquote weird. Okay. So. No, my favorite part of the story about the Nashville show is that they it was a mix between like punks and like Nashville people. And so for the first half of the show, they played all of their hootenanny shit, all the Hank Williams. And then when all the punks left and it was just the Nashville people, they played all their hardcore punk shit. Yes. <laughs> We gotta troll you guys. And okay, so don't. Yeah, so where's my fucking money, bro? Like, yo, we're not gonna get paid for the gig. Uh, you don't understand art. Fuck you. <laughs> but 
honestly, don't get me wrong. A lot of nights they were great. Yeah. Right. They, of they, they were rocking. They would bring the house down. They would be everyone's favorite live band. Period. Yeah. But sometimes when the audience seemed not welcoming or even entitled, like you said, uh, like like they, they were all like, "Come on, prove yourself to me." The band they would refuse. Yeah. No, fuck no. And, and instead they would pick up on the crowd's attitude and sh- serve the shit right back to them. Mm-hmm. And that's why they were so exciting to watch. Yeah. They weren't faking it. All of this is real. And if you're in the room watching them, then you're a part of it. So don't encourage them <laughs> unless you want to see some crazy shit because it's by design, but also not by design, but also by design. <laughs> they're deliberate in what they're trying to do, even if they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Because it's no rules. They're trying to forge a path for themselves in a way that no one else has, at least not to their knowledge. Yeah. And they're being careful not to do what everyone else does, like taking themselves too seriously. Yeah. They're just trying to be themselves with as much gusto as they can. Definitely. I mean, if one critic like put it perfectly. He said, when you went to see a replacement show during this time period, you didn't know whether you were going to get served a steak or a hand grenade. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but it was always awesome. It was always fucking great to see. But mostly, yeah. I mean, this was due to the fact the replacements rarely, if ever, used a set list. I mean, they let the mood of the room and the crowd direct the show for better or worse. And sometimes you'd get 20 replacement songs and five covers. And other times, you get the opposite. You'd get five replacement songs and 20 <laughs> covers. And it was, you know, with mixed results. One show of the latter fair that resulted in a fantastic gig occurred in Oklahoma City in November of 1984 at a place called the Bowery. The venue had the capacity for 1,200, but on this night, only 30 people showed up, including, most likely, members of the Flaming Lips, who made a point to never miss the replacements when they came to Oklahoma. Yep. Throughout the evening, the band played only five originals in a 24-song set <laughs> that included covers of the Jackson 5's I'll Be There, Saturday Night Special by Leonard Skinner, Iron Man, Jailbreak, Radio Free Europe, and interestingly, I Will Follow by U2. Well, it's not a bad song. It's a little new wavy, that's all. <laughs> However, the covers they played showed the depth of the replacement's musical knowledge, which came mostly from the mixtapes Peter Jesperson would play for the band Ad Nauseum on tour. See, while Westerberg barely knew Iron Man beyond singing I Am Iron Man is the only lyrics <laughs> of the song, like, I am Iron Man. How else do you I sing am, that? I am Iron Man. He <laughs> He and the rest of the band knew most of a fairly obscure Robin Hitchcock song called Ye Sleeping Nights of Jesus. And let's hear the replacements play that song at that gig. <laughs> <laughs> what 
What's the lyric? <laughs> no, that, that was a, that was another song request because that's why they played "Ye Sleeping Nights of Jesus," which was what was so insane is that people were just there's like, "Why oh, are fucking here?" And then she's like, "Ye Sleeping Nights of Jesus," and they're just like, "Okay, two, three, four. <laughs> I have seen the sleepy nights of Jesus. I love that. God, I, I'd never heard that song before uh, until I listened to this. God, I'm in love with it now. And the reason why I have that recording to play is because this show was recorded by the DJ at the Bowery. But after the show, one of the replacements, roadies, just stole the tape. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, he'd done that many times. <laughs> and after hearing how solid, if extremely sloppy it was, Twin Tone Records released the recording on a cassette-only 10,000-copy run as the shit hits the fans. One review said, if it isn't their worst release, I guess it's their best. <laughs> It's amazing. Like, you, I mean, of course, it's not on like Spotify or anything. And it's still not. I mean, you have to if you want to hear if you want a physical copy of it, you have to buy the tape off of like fucking Discogs. So we fucking did. Okay, I did. Because yeah, I, I love it that fucking much. But the whole thing's on YouTube. And it's such an amazing it's such an amazing fucking artifact of like what this band was like to see at this period of time. But interestingly, though. One of the five originals that the replacements played that night was one of their best, although the song wouldn't show up on an album for another three years on 1987's Please to Meet Me. But written right after the Let It Be sessions, this song was unsuccessfully recorded for the replacements' next album, Tim, but it was finally gussied up in Memphis with a bunch of unnecessary, highly controversial horns. I know I'm going to get some... The, the horns are a big fucking point of contention it's in that fucking song. On um, the shit hits the fans, though. You can hear this classic as an unhinged rocker, sung with the appropriate amount of desperation, even if I'm not sure Westerberg knew all the lyrics. Regardless, that song was Can't Hardly Wait. I mean, it's the same song, but it's different as well. Like, I like it's, it. It's, I love it. I fucking, that's my favorite version of Can't Hardly Wait. I fucking I adore it so much. Mm. Okay, so as you said, shit hits the fans. Uh, only five songs were originals, and 19 of them were covers that people in the audience requested. <laughs> so on the liner notes, they read, Sorry about the writing credits. We assume all the songs are copyrighted in the year they were written by those who wrote them, <laughs> whoever they were. Okay, got the legal stuff out of the way. I, and, I, and I do believe Paul Westerberg probably wrote that, uh, like he wrote the liner notes for Sorry Ma. Yeah. And Chris Mars, he did the artwork for the shit hits the fans. Uh, he's a talented artist, as mm -hmm. we said before, and he was always drawing or doodling between tours, during tours. He's doing it right now. Yeah. You know, He drew a caricature of Bob Stinson wearing only a tutu holding some scissors at Bob's Barbershop. Mm -hmm. It's a fun little thing on their official bootleg release because they boot 
they bootleg themselves. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> because as I said before, even though Chris is usually the quiet one, doesn't mean he isn't out of his mind like the other guys. No, Chris has his, he has his picadillos. They all have different ways of expressing themselves. Like Chris Mars's alter ego, Pappy the Clown. Pappy. Now, Pappy the Clown had to be put into the script. And... <laughs> I don't know why I was tasked with this, so I want you to know. Okay, so Pappy the Clown was a, a really new like replacement drummer when Chris Mars would leave, and then Pappy would come back. Mm-hmm. And apparently, he would come back, and it, it was just weird and uncomfortable, and he would have this big smile with the mouth closed, like bug-eyed face with big smile mouth closed kind of thing, <laughs> which creeps everyone out. Why? He just he would paint himself up like a clown, but then he'd show up, but he wouldn't like talk. He would just do everything in mind, just be like, honk, honk, like yeah, Pappy the Clown. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I love. I love it. Like they said that like he wouldn't say a word. He said they described it as startling. Like that when he would actually do it, he said it was just fucking weird. And I love that. And the the way that Westerberg said like when Pappy would come out, like the first time was like kind of quizzical and exciting, like oh this is weird. But then the next time I was like, well someone's gonna get hit with a bottle tonight. It's scary. It's like watching one of those Norwegian psychological thrillers. They take it a step too far. Yeah, man, it's method. It's lo- I love it. Yeah, I love it. Drunk okay. it all weird. Okay, so let's step away from this weirdness for a minute. That wonderful, uncomfortable, and pretty disturbing weirdness. And to, hey, this new album is going to come out. Yeah. The Let It Be album. But w- what's going to be on that cover? Well, they found their answer with photographer Daniel Corrigan. He was hired to do promo pictures for them, uh, but corralling them together to get it done was nearly impossible. He had to promise them cocaine. He said, I'll, I'll go, I'll give you guys some coke if you come with me and just stand still. So, yeah, that's the great thing about, yeah, that's the great thing about cocaine. I know every time I've done it, my first instinct was definitely stand still. <laughs> but it's like, I have cocaine. Okay, okay. I, will, I will follow you, sir. Whatever you, whoever you are, yeah. uh, the traveler. Yeah, standing still and being quiet. Those are the two, my favorite two things to do on cocaine. <laughs> well, you haven't done it in a long time. Very long time. Thank many, you. many years. So, okay, so they, uh, the band, they tried different places, uh, like posing places for this photography. Like, they, they had to get it right. Uh, so they tried in the Stinson's basement and then they uh, one day they did the Abbey Road thing from the Beatles but that was a little too on the the nose so they continued taking pictures upstairs on the roof of the Stinson's house until Daniel Corrigan the photographer he got the right one it didn't take more than 30 minutes he just wanted to put them up there in a confined somewhat dangerous space so he could get what he needed from them which is a photo you see on the cover of Let It Be. It's an iconic photo, yeah. And it's just the Stinson's house. Like It's just the roof of the Stinson house, and that's it. And it's still there. It's still there. Yeah. You can drive by it anytime. Yeah. Now, unlike other seminal albums that were released to either derision or silence, Let It Be was met with glowing reviews. Rolling Stone pulled their head out of their ass and gave it four stars. And by the end of the year, the album sat at number four on the Village Voices storied Paz and Jop critics poll, sitting behind Bruce Springsteen and Prince. And speaking of which, 1984 was quite possibly the best year of music ever yes. for Minnesota. Yes! Almost all at once, you had Let It Be by The Replacements, what's considered the best Husker Du album in Zen Arcade, Love it. and Prince's Purple Rain. Ooh.
fuck was going on in the Twin Cities in 1984? Jesus Christ. I know, right? <laughs> yeah, let it be Zen Arcade and Purple Rain. All recorded in fucking Minneapolis in 1984. That's fucking crazy. I know. They're all drinking the same grain belt beer. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I don't think Brins is drinking. He's busy rehearsing every single day. And they actually, they filmed Purple Rain. Like most of the scenes in Purple Rain were filmed at First Avenue, as I mentioned, the legendary music venue in Minneapolis that still stands today. Yeah. And right next door is 7th Street Entry, or simply called the Entry. Uh, so, like, when you hear all, like, I read all the time in the books and the articles and stuff, they always mention, like, oh, people coming out from Minneapolis. They always mention, like, the replacements, Husker Du. Prince and so they would always be like yes like these huge places like uh like 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 First Avenue capacity of 1500 people and then there were also these other little bands like replacements who would do the entry <laughs> <laughs> they would always be like don't worry there was these other little guys <laughs> well concerning the reviews for let it be not everyone loved it those who loved the replacements as the punks from sorry ma and stink trashed it and nobody was louder about it than professional contrarian Steve <laughs> Albini then the leader of the abrasive yet incredible Chicago proto-industrial band, Big Black. One of my favorites. God, I love Big Black so much. It pains me. <laughs> it pains me how much I love Big Black. <laughs> Albini. I I just can't. I can't do it. I can't take it anymore. I can't tell you the fucking energy that Big Black gives me. Like, like the fucking, like it's just like if I ever needed a soundtrack to fucking destroy the state. Oh, songs about fucking is it, man. It relaxes me. (laughs) It really does. I I love Big Black. I, 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 and also, you know, Steve Albini, he started out as a journalist, a college uh, kid in, in in Chicago. And he wrote a lot of music reviews. You know, he was a music uh, critic and also started his band, Big Black. Well, actually it was just, he's like, no one else can do it but me. And then eventually (laughs) had to let other people in because he has very high standards. Extremely high standards. And man, you hear, when you listen to Atomizer, like, oh my God, that fucking, the high standards come through because it's so fucking weird and it's like it is the type of music that can only be 
produced by a person like Steve Albini. I know. <laughs> remember what I said in the in the last episode, like one of the levels of hell <laughs> is, and this is a whole new thing, is every day where you're eight years old and you have to learn to play the recorder for school. Remember those fake flute things? Yeah. And you're learning hot crust buns for a week. And then you have to play it in front of the whole school for some stupid showcase and your music teacher's sitting up front and it's Steve Albini. <laughs> and he has to tell you what he thinks. Every day for hell, all of eternity, you will go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> no, anyway, like, like Steve Albini, he's like he's like the Batman. It's like I can never do that, but I need someone like him to make music like this. <laughs> like we don't want him, but we need him. God damn it, we do need him. Uh, so 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 Steve Steve Albini, he loved Stink. He was actually a fan of the Replacements. He wanted more Stink. Then Hootenanny came out. What was that? Yeah. Then the release of Let It Be, which Steve Albini considered a sad, pathetic end to a downhill slide. <laughs> In his review for Matter magazine, he called the record irretrievably lost in the maudlin cabaret of Westerberg's folk music blatherings. <laughs> he hated everything except I Will Dare and then concluded with, I used to love these guys. Now I hate this guy. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know if he had a handkerchief, but he was definitely polishing something with it when he wrote that. I used to love him. Now I hate, <laughs> hate him. Them. I just wanted to have friends. Uh, so, so anyway. Yeah, and then he fucking produced fucking... In Surfer Rosa, Surfer Rosa, in, in utero, I know. and just yeah, it was either Surfer Rosa Had or Doolittle, one of the two. Everything. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's one of the greatest producers in history. <laughs> you see, Grandma's boy is like that guy. Yeah. So okay, then okay, so then uh, the the replacements they had this young music journalist from the Village Voice named R.J. Smith follow them around on tour for about a week. He observed them, spent days and nights in the van with them, scribbling notes and writing down quotes and. Of course, when the feature came out, the, the cover feature, the story on the replacements, uh, the article said a lot of unflattering things about them on tour, yeah. like the things we've talked about in the last hour and a half. And the band was mad, although they knew it was pretty accurate. <laughs> it was actually a really accurate portrayal of them. Very. They just didn't want to read about it. But lucky for them, it was the worst selling issue of the Village Voice of that whole year. <laughs> so as they're getting more press, as the replacements are getting more attention, they're kind of staying the same. I, I, I don't know how well this is going to turn out. Yeah. But despite the somewhat bad press from The Voice, the replacements, much like their former tour mates R.E.M., were finally beginning their long reign as one of the kings of college radio. Basically, Twin Tone had hired a guy named Blake Gumprecht to aggressively campaign for The Replacements and the label's other bands on college radio. And Twin Tone sent out promo copies of Let It Be to hundreds of college radio stations across the country. And so, when I Will Dare was released as a single in September of 1984... It hit number one on 55 campus stations all across the country, which was no mean feat in a medium that's mostly freeform and heavily populated with fussy music nerds such as myself. Now, sure, a lot of those stations only had 100 watts, barely strong enough to broadcast throughout their campuses. But here, in the early days of alternative rock, major record labels were starting to see that college radio was a pretty solid farm league for the next generation of rock hit makers. Now, in the case of The Replacements, the band had gotten there completely of their own accord by following none of the rules that had been set out by countless bands before, and finally putting out the record that they felt was, in essence, the best version of themselves. But what The Replacements were about to find out is that their freewheeling, almost anarchic style of living and playing would clash terribly with the next level of popularity. And it's with that absolute disaster 
that will conclude our series on the replacements. Oh, God, we got one more to go. We got one more to go. That's right. Okay, this is exciting. Uh, Real quick, I just, uh, I want to say I read Perfect Circle, the story of R.E.M. by Tony Fletcher. It it was really good book. Uh, I, I mean, I didn't read the whole thing. I just read until they met the replacements. <laughs> but but the, the first, the third, fourth of the book was great. Fantastic. Check it out uh, to hear more about R.E.M. and, and, and their bi- band dynamics, which made them work for more than 30 years. It yeah. really is a, a great way in learning about how to manage a band. And uh, we also checked out Rolling Stone's Out Rock Arama, an outrageous compendium of facts, fiction, trivia, and critiques on alternative rock by Scott Schinder and the editors of Rolling Stone Press. It's a fun bathroom book, like you called it. Yeah. It's a bathroom book. It's it's fun. It, it, it was like a little book of like little articles and top fives, listicle kind of stuff before like the internet made it a thing. Yeah. Um, so that was cool. And then I checked out a lot of interviews online and everywhere. And of course, thank you again to Jack Rabbit, founder and editor of the Big Takeover magazine for for letting me email him <laughs> and then it, us talking back and forth. I really, really appreciate all the knowledge that he's shared and uh, what a great guy. Yeah. Just fantastic guy. Yeah, he's great. No, and he's great in the uh, the Replacements documentary, The Color Me Obsessed. Uh, he's also, he's in that a ton as well. But yeah, yeah, Jack Rabbit's great. And then we also have an Instagram at No Dogs Pod. Uh, you can follow, uh, you can also follow me on Carolina Danger Hidalgo, but we got No Dogs Pod, so you can check out uh, you, you know, updates yeah. and, and all the things. And we have t-shirts for yeah. sale, lastpodcastmerch.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, the and also the playlist that we're going to put up uh, you know, on Marcus's uh, Spotify account. Mm-hmm. And also you can check it out on our YouTube as well if you do not have Spotify. That's right. And our band this week, of course, we play a band every single week uh, from one of our listeners uh, out there. If you got a band uh, and you want to get played at the end of the episode, just, or you just make music. Or if you just make music. You don't music. have to be yeah. a band. You could just be a guy or a girl or anything in between. And you just just make noises and then you record them and then you email them to nodogsinspace at gmail.com. We will play it if, if, if we can. We would love to. We'd be honored to. We'd absolutely be honored to. And our band this week is Libra Libra out of Brighton in the UK. Seriously, this band is going to fucking blow They're awesome. Up. <laughs> this band is going to blow up. Uh, this song that we're going to play, it's off their new EP, Modern Millennial. And if you want to see them live, they'll be playing Friday, May 6th at the Jacaranda in Liverpool. You can follow them at Libra Libra Music for more. Uh, so, man, dig this song. It's called Candy Mountain. It's fucking amazing. Uh, and we shall see y'all in a couple of weeks uh, for the replacement part four. Right, right. We're going to take a week off and then we'll... We're then not we'll, taking a week off. We're taking we're a week not. to do the episode. We're going to take a week to do because there was a little bit of emergency with Cancun Airport. Yes, there and, was. And then, yeah, yes, Carolyn, if you heard about the uh, whole uh, incident in the Cancun Airport in which they thought there was a mass I shooting... I didn't start it. I did yeah. not start it. I didn't say any... I didn't make a joke. Okay, guys? It, there was yeah. a, there was a the panic, a stampede and then I... Um, you got the, caught in the middle of it yes, and... Lost yeah. my mind. Yeah, lost <laughs> but I'm, and, I'm fine. Yes, and lost, and we lost a lot of time uh, to do the uh, the the episode and to get the episode out on time. So we are working our damnedest to to get these episodes out. But you know, it, I'm still I, I've, I've been saying it for years, and I'll keep on fucking saying it. You want it done fast, or do you want it done right? Because <laughs> that's right. Because that's because we always want to give you guys the best possible episode that we can possibly give you. Uh, so thank you so much for your patience. Uh, thanks for being such great fucking fans. Uh, thank you so much. We really do appreciate it. And uh, we'll see y'all in a couple weeks. But until then, enjoy Candy Mountain by Libra Libra. Goodbye, y'all. Thanks. Goodbye. My bed is also cold. I want to 
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.